Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This week, co-authors Craig Horrell and Joseph Foster discuss their book, Lawmaking and Legislators in Pennsylvania, a Biographical Dictionary. Craig Horley, author and editor of Lawmaking and Legislators in Pennsylvania, 1710 to 1756. Can you describe this book? Uh, what we've done, this is the second in the series, uh, what we've done is actually written biographies, fairly lengthy biographies, of all the members of the House, the Pennsylvania, what was called the Pennsylvania Assembly in the period. Uh, each volume uh, has a, a number of legislators who served in that period of time, and at the same time, we're also trying to write introductory essays to explain the context of the period, to understand the uh, nature of politics and how the House worked, as well as the people who served in it. Why 1710 to 1756? Well, the first line went from 1682 to 1709, and 1709 was a good breaking point because the 1710 election was one of the first elections, it may have even been the first election, as I recall, where the incumbents were swept out of the House, effectively. It was a complete turnover. It was a reaction by Quakers, in particular, to what had gone for about four years before, where no legislation had been enacted. And uh, there had been bitter feelings toward William Penn by those early, some of the earlier assemblies. So in a sense, 1710 was a perfect point to start the second volume. 1756, because it's the beginning of the Seven Years' War, was perfect. And also, there's, there's a certain limitation because of the number of legislators. Uh, given the size of the essays, we'd have a 3,000-page book if we went uh, too far beyond 1756. So it was a good breaking point. Uh, Joe Foster, you also contributed to writing this book. You wrote and edited a portion of it. Can you right. describe the process, how you went about doing this? Sure. Um, well, we each editor on the project has received their own assignment, each uh, legislator. And uh, we have uh, collected at the project oh, thousands and thousands of documents that we can now refer to immediately to get a background sketch on these individuals. Often we'll go out to the field, we'll go to the uh, repositories in Chester County, uh, Cumberland County, as far as Allegheny County in the future. Um, and we will gather as much biographical information about this individual as possible. We will gather as much political information about this individual, what they did in the House. We'll, we'll mine the minutes of the House to sort of get a sense of where they were politically. And once we've collected all this research, we try to write a short uh, but yet uh, fulfilling essay so that we can we can present to the reader as much information as possible about this individual. Their religious background, um, were they active in the assembly, were they active in their community, what was their economic status. So we will... Yeah, part of, part of the, our dilemma was, in a sense, uh, for us to be able to do this, we really needed to get the approval of our peers. And that was a national endowment for the humanities. It was very important to us. And to get through a peer review process, we actually had to do more than the typical biographical dictionary, which were often very small sketches and simply a data paragraph and uh, columns. They would say, how much land did he own? Uh, how, what was his wealth? And he would just plug in a number. And what we uh, wanted to do was something that was much more unique. We wanted to be able to write really interpretive essays that were fairly lengthy, not outrageously long, 
uh, and also present uh, as well-rounded a view as we could. We weren't just interested in the politics. We wanted to look at their taxes, for example. What, what was their wealth in the period? How much land did they own? Who were they married to? What was, uh, how, how large was their family? What were their kinship connections to other legislators? Because often you run into that uh, in, in any group like this. It's fairly elite that many of them are, are actually related, particularly in, say, Chester County, yes. Bucks County, some of the early counties. Um, so we really wanted to present a much broader picture than just politics. And we knew that that would be far more appealing to a body like the National Endowment for the Humanities. We had to demonstrate that it was more than just a little political study of the Pennsylvania legislature in the colonial period. We wanted to show that these were, uh, that this was really a unique period. The House was unique, but also we wanted to get a really good picture of who the people were, as well-rounded a view as we could. Oh, I'm sorry, no, sometimes that presents its own problems, though, one of balance. And invariably we'll find <laughs> warehouses with information about one individual, and then we'll have a legislator who sat for 20 years and will not have left behind a scrap of paper <laughs> about his life. So one of our objects is we try to mine as much information as possible, and sometimes it is literally like wringing water from a rock. Uh, and yet these individuals we know are prominent within their time. They're key leaders yeah. within their community and in the House, but we know so little about them. So part of our object is to, is to sort of redress the balance, to give even these individuals uh, enough information so that we can build up a, a sense of who they were. Can we set the stage a little bit for this discussion and describe Pennsylvania in 1710? What was it like? Well, it was still expanding. It was a very early period. Uh, when you look at the settled counties in 1710, essentially looking at Philadelphia County, uh, Bucks County, and Chester County, and then you have the West and the North, essentially. Uh, it was a period when it was still under the proprietorship of William Penn, so you have Quaker domination still of the House at this particular period of time. Um, Philadelphia was growing. It was becoming certainly one of the major port, ports in the British colonial system. Um, essentially, the, the, the real dilemma, I think, for the Quakers in this period and for Pennsylvania was this whole issue of expansion, because at the same time there was uh, Maryland that they were dealing with, the, certain, you know, the problems with uh, the border with Maryland, uh, the fact that Delaware was also under control at this time of the, the Penn family proprietorship, what happens in terms of Delaware. Um, so th there, there's a lot of uh, New York is competing in terms of the fur trade. So you have a lot of competition in terms of westward expansion. That's going to be a real issue. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's not yet quite as diverse a colony as it will become with the influx of the Germans and the Scots-Irish. That's going to come really in the teens in the 1720s and 30s and beyond. Uh, it's still predominantly Quaker with a smattering of Anglicans, uh, some, some Presbyterians and Baptists, some uh, Swedes and Welsh, uh, some Dutch, although that essentially is coming from the lower counties, what becomes Delaware, because those settlers were there well before the Quakers had been there. So it really is, it's a very interesting period, 1710 and that period, because Pennsylvania can expand dramatically, and yet nothing is certain, particularly when you have a Quaker who's the proprietor uh, and who's not here. That's the other dilemma. William Penn was still alive in 1710? Yes. Yes, he was back in England at this point. What kind of involvement did he have in Pennsylvania? Uh, well, <laughs> depends on, on your point of view. I think from William Penn's point of view, I think he felt that he was very involved in this colony. Uh, but he was only here twice. Uh, he came over initially and then returned in 1700 briefly. 
before going back to England. For the colonists, however, he was an absentee <laughs> landlord, and um, the, the letters, the, the exchanges between his counselors and uh, the proprietor often point to the fact that he was absent, that he needed to be here to make decisions um, as their government falls apart into sort of bickering among themselves as to who was commissioned to do what. Um, so depending on their point of view, yeah. part of the problem for Penn also was because he was an absentee landlord, um, he had difficulty collecting what he thought was his fair share of the quit rents and the various uh, monies that he thought should have been coming to the proprietor, at least to cover the expenses that he had laid out. The legislature hadn't developed either the way he had, uh, had wanted initially. Uh, he, he had envisioned a kind of broader, more democratic form in a, in a kind of odd sense. It was going to be both elitist and democratic. Because initially, in 1682, what he had envisioned was a provincial council, which would be, be like an upper house, of 72 members and an assembly of 200 members and of a, of a governor with the real power, almost complete power, in the hands of the governor and the provincial council. And the, the house was only to meet for nine days. And for eight of those days, they could you know, discuss the legislation presented to them by the provincial council and then either pass it or reject it. That was to be their sole role. And of course, what had happened is the House had evolved in ways that he had never imagined. Uh, so that created a great deal of tension. Also, to be a governor in Pennsylvania at this period of time, you had to be able to take the oaths, which Quakers could not do, the oaths of allegiance, for example, to the crown. So consequently, the governors were not the kind of governors that were really in line with what the Quakers wanted in many cases. So that presented even more tension. And then uh, uh, Penn himself even tried to sell his right to uh, govern the colony at one point. He was so disillusioned with uh, the Quakers in particular and their constant opposition that he felt uh, to, his, to his, his rule and the rule of the governors. And broke. And, and he was broke. <laughs> that was the only problem. He was in jail for a brief span Cash of time. Uh, there's, there's, Penn himself is, is, uh, is a fascinating topic. I worked on the papers of William Penn prior to establishing this project with two of my colleagues, and uh, he's fascinating. Did he own all the land? He was the owner in of all the land in Pennsylvania? Yes. And then mm -hmm. if anyone who lived here had to pay him rent? You purchased, uh, say, 100 acres, and you may have paid 10 to 15 pounds, um, which was payable over time. But more importantly was the quit rent. That is, even though the land was yours in fee simple, you owed every year, like a shilling sterling, to the proprietor um, for the right to have that land. You could own the land and have paid for the land, but if you failed to pay your quit rent, in theory, you could have lost the land, even though you bought it and even though it is yours. Now, the problem was that colonists were slow to pay. Or didn't at all. <laughs> or didn't at all. So, <laughs> hence, another part of the problem for William Penn. Yeah, there was a great deal of, fr of friction, there's no doubt about it, between the I mean, the Quakers looked up to him and they admired and respected him, but not as a landlord. And that was one of the major problems. And of course, the, as the Anglican community grows, they're not sympathetic at all to either Penn or the Quakers. And then, of course, later on with the influx of the Scots-Irish and the Germans, uh, that just further uh, exacerbates the problem to some extent. To zoom ahead, if I can, in, in the 1750s, um, Penn is now dead and his son, Thomas Penn, takes over. And where William Penn was well-meaning and well-intended, but not perhaps very effective in collecting his money, Thomas Penn was never well in meaning, but he certainly was effective. And, uh, Did he live in Pennsylvania? Briefly. For about 10 years. About 10 years. Uh, yes. 
a rarity he, for the Penn family, yes. I mean, at that stage. He came over, he was uh, sort of one of the brothers who inherited the colony, and uh, after they had, uh, after they straightened out who in fact was to be in charge, Thomas Penn came over, and, and all the colonists were quite relieved until he got here. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then they were very relieved when he left. So uh, he came over with the sole purpose, however, of um, straightening up the finances of the Penn family and, and getting out what he thought was rightfully his own. And, and if you, you put that next to the fact that this is the time, when he's here is in the 30s, I think 32 30s. to 42, somewhere around there, uh, this is the time of the expansion. Colony is expanding. I mean, you have Lancaster counties already developed by that time, and gra and of course there are all the all the constant friction along the Susquehanna with Maryland. What's going on up there? You have squatters all over the place, on on Penn land because the Pens had also set aside tens of thousands of acres for themselves. They had various manors they were called, and of course. The Germans and the Scots-Irish weren't concerned about the manners. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't an issue. So they're settling left and right on these lands and squatting and, or, or getting warrants illegally and things of this sort. So it really created uh, a lot of turmoil. Yes. I'm sorry. When were the borders of Pennsylvania established? When was it finally decided where it ended? Oh my God. Where did it end? Uh, when was that decided? How was it decided? The Delaware border, the Maryland border? Um, now, let's see, the Maryland border with uh, the uh, uh, Baltimore family, Lord Baltimore, goes up to the Mason-Dixon period. That's right. Mason-Dixon uh, line. Um, uh, aside from that, it's just, I don't know when would be the final the determination. There, there was something referred to in your book called Cresap's War. Oh, oh yeah. Cresap's War. That Cresap's was along the Susquehanna. That was, the, that was Maryland. That the was border the, war with Maryland? That was yes. the border war with Maryland, which was quite ugly, actually. There, there were the, the, the ones they were relying on, uh, Penn, were uh, people like Wright, the Wright family, John Wright, uh, later Wright's, Wright's right. Ferry, uh, and also Samuel Blunston. They were carrying on the war along the border. They're carrying on the struggle to maintain the border, essentially. They're, ex they're expanding on the other side of the Susquehanna. And, and Thomas Penn's major concern is collecting his quit rents, and this was the problem. Blunston would be writing these letters back and forth, you know, please send posses, send weapons, help us out here. You know, we're holding this for you. And he said, well, about the squatters in the area, I think we need to raise the amount of money. I mean, you know, not to put them in a bad light, because literally they hadn't been paid forever. But uh, that was finally settled. Uh, there was a uh, compromise in the late 1730s with Maryland, but it was one of these things that just dragged on and on and on. Literally, I'm sure, to the, to the time of the Mason-Dixon line. It wasn't unique to Pennsylvania. All colonies had this problem. That when the uh, charters were drafted in London in the 17th century, no one had any idea of North America geography, so they just arbitrarily picked lines. Uh, the Baltimore family claimed Pennsylvania up to the, what, the 40th parallel, which would have cut right through Philadelphia, Philadelphia. <laughs> and I think Pittsburgh, too, probably. Yeah. Um, so that, was, that took decades to contest until it was finally uh, decided in Penn's favor. But uh, Pennsylvania's boundaries, including the northern tier, was not decided until like 1782 in uh, Trenton, at the decree of Trenton when, the, when Connecticut, of all places, mm. claimed the entire northern tier, that is the northern Pennsylvania right across to the uh, Mississippi River. And Did Virginia claim a portion of it at one time? Virginia claimed what is now Washington County. and. Um, but that also was resolved amicably. It didn't, that was not a, much of a tension point because Virginia's, I think Virginia's perspective was that its claim to that land was tenuous to begin with. They were having difficulty holding it without help. 
So uh, I, they were I think, happy to I come really, to a terms. I really do think one of the most astonishing facets, uh, I, I lived in England for a long period of time and actually worked at the uh, major Quaker library in England. Uh, you have a marginalized people in the Quakers in England, and you have William Penn, who's not here except for four years, all told. And yet, if you look at the expansion and the size of Pennsylvania, it's extraordinary how they were able to do it. I mean, it really is astonishing. Uh, and, and the fact that the proprietary family, in a sense, didn't even have a great deal of power. Real power resided, and I think that's what comes out in the book to some extent, in the only single house legislature in the colonies. Uh, the, the way in which the Pennsylvania Assembly expanded its power was really quite extraordinary. And I, I think that's the thing that is so astonishing, that A, the Penn family proprietary survived to the revolution, which is you know, fairly unique, and then beyond that, the extraordinary power of the Pennsylvania Assembly. I mean, it really was unique. Well, your book is about the Pennsylvania Assembly, so we probably ought to talk about that a little bit. <laughs> uh, when did it come into existence? Right away, um, when they that? first landed in 1682. 1682. And um, uh, Penn laid out his plan, as Craig had outlined, and the columnist promptly said there was just not enough people to go around to fill a 200-person assembly. So he scaled back, but, but there was an assembly in 1683, and there has been one ever since. Right. And initially, the problem was, initially, Penn, Penn realized that he had to secure the lower counties because it was critical for shipping in the long run. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they ever envisioned, for example, Newcastle to be a rival to Philadelphia or anything of this sort. So what he did is he joined the legislatures. And, and in effect, there wasn't a legislature for the lower counties. The lower counties, or Delaware, actually, they became members of what was the Pennsylvania Assembly initially. So you had this ungodly combination of the Quakers dominating the Pennsylvania area, and then you had, in, in essence, in some cases, uh, what might later be called almost freebooters down in the, in the lower counties, people who were a wilder brand of people in many cases, those who were much more used to the wilderness, uh, who had come over to an area that was completely unsettled and hadn't fully developed the lower counties. They're suddenly joined in a legislative body with these Quakers who were coming over from England in, in 1682. And it was an unholy alliance, yes. I think. The religious means the a-religious at this time. <laughs> well, it didn't, didn't seem to go over well. What, at this point, what kind of authority did the legislature have? What was it called? Was it called the Assembly? It was called the, the Assembly, Pennsylvania Assembly. What kind, of, what kind of authority did they have? Well, they, initially, their sole authority was to simply approve or disapprove laws. That was the... The great irony, I think, for Penn is that when he sat down and drafted his, his constitution, he was borrowing, he was considered a liberal. He was on the cutting edge of liberal <laughs> thought of 17th century England. He and John Locke, uh, um, uh, they, um, Locke wrote a constitution for South Carolina. It was the same principle where they tried to incorporate what they thought were all these elements of, of liberal thought into a government. What did that mean at the time, liberal? It meant that the traditional theory was you had a strong executive, that is the monarch. You had a body of individuals who were wise and smart, that is the Senate or the House of Lords. Mm -hmm. And then you had the commoners, the yeomen, the sort of sturdy, salt-of-the-earth people who, who <laughs> with their common sense, approved or disapproved ideas. Um, that was the traditional uh, political framework, um, and, and Penn drew heavily from, for example, uh, James Harrington's Oceana, which came out in the 17th century. It was a political document describing mm -hmm. what was the best way to write a government. Mm -hmm. But it really was, it ran away from him, um, because once you established a, a, a government that, had, that gave the people a voice, 
well, then you, you can't stop them from speaking. And that's exactly what happened. Once the assembly was assembled, they had a lot to say. Especially if you're not there. And that was the major problem. As, as an absentee landlord, you're not there. And the time it would take for information to get from point A to point B when you're going across the ocean and then get the information back, and considering Penn had his own problems in England, that's how a, a legislative body is able to basically increase its power. I mean, there's, there's no one really to stand in their way to some extent. So what did they do? Uh, well, uh, they fought with the governors consistently. The key is, is money. I mean, in the long run, it's power of the purse. And because the Penn family really was, to put it in a nice way, cheap, <laughs> they didn't really pay the governors the kind of salary that many of the governors felt was commensurate with the position. So consequently, the real power of the purse very early on lay with the assembly. They paid the governor's salary. If once you're in that position, then you can essentially bargain with a governor, particularly since governors often weren't just living themselves off the money that they had. They also had to pay for whatever government expenditures there were. So that was one facet. Uh, they were able to use the legislative process uh, and the power of the purse to gradually gain the right to dismiss themselves, to prorogue themselves or adjourn themselves, uh, complete power over their own membership. Uh, those were very important because once you can dismiss yourself and the governor really doesn't have that right, then you're in a much more powerful position. But I'm, in the long run, particularly when they developed the general loan office, Pennsylvania had a paper currency like many of the colonies did. And once you develop a general loan office and you're able to use the interest that's coming in, the, the way the general loan office worked is the money would be issued and then loaned out uh, as mortgages from the general loan office on land and you would pay it back over 16 years with interest. Well, what happened is the principal gets paid back. That's fine. Where does the interest go? The interest was going into the assembly. So the assembly had this money that essentially they could use that the governor had absolutely no control over. And that becomes a very important weapon to some sure. degree. That was just Pennsylvania money? Just issued by Pennsylvania? It was Pennsylvania currency. Um, many colonies issued their own currency. But Pennsylvania, because it was based on land, was one of the strongest currencies in North America at the time. Who accepted it? Well, that was, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, Philadelphia merchants would accept it. For example, if you, if you were a farmer in Chester County and you wanted to buy a, a new a clock for the hall for your new home, you would head down to Philadelphia and you would order it out of England. And you would pay with Pennsylvania currency, and what the merchant would do was then take that currency and sort of exchange it for uh, London sterling. So you may pay more, in fact, than what it was worth uh, simply for that process. But that's how, it was, that's how money was transacted from across the ocean. But the problem was that Pennsylvania currency made the crown very nervous. They didn't like colonial money because of its inflationary potential. And if you've, if you've uh, contracted debts in sterling, and you're trying to pay it off in what is often cheaper currency. I think that's the dilemma. Uh, the crown constantly uh, uh, railed against colonial currency. They, they often had to, they had to write, Pennsylvania laws when they were passed had to be submitted to England. And they had to write to repeal them basically in England. So one of the major struggles that goes on throughout this period is over paper money. Uh, and also uh, the uh, Penn family was not happy about it because your quit rents were to be in sterling. And they really did not like to get paid in cheap Pennsylvania money as well. And yet Pennsylvania had a stronger currency than many of the other colonies. But it's at the revolution, 
of course, the currency goes haywire. And then, and then you're looking at, I, we, we do a lot of work with land records in these, and you'll see in the early period, if you sell a piece of land for 200 pounds, that's, we, we consider that quite a lot of money. The revolutionary period, if you're, you're selling for 20,000 pounds, that's how inflated the currency became. That's always the danger from the English point of view that sterling uh, has a value that they felt it's much stronger, it's more uh, consistent. Gold and silver specie is tangible. Paper, you can just issue willy-nilly. That was their fear. Right. The members of the legislature, who, who were they? What type of person would become a member of the assembly? Invariably, they were people who were at the top of their economic bracket. Um, typically, there were farmers in the, in the outside Philadelphia area. They would be frequently justices of the peace, um, county commissioners, people who held local office. They would have, uh, in Chester County, for example, it was a 95% certainty that they were a Quaker. Quaker. <laughs> at least <laughs> and a, and a good soul. one. <laughs> and a good one. In good standing, at and least until standing. the French and Indian War. That's right. At least until that period. But right. also, they'd be about 42, 41, 42 years old, That's be right. the general uh, period. They would serve, on average, maybe four to six terms. Um, it, it, it depends on the area, it really does, because Philadelphia County had never been quite as strongly Quaker. That was one area where there had been quite a few Anglicans that were settled and others. So that, that was always a little more marginal from the Quaker viewpoint, whereas Bucks County and Chester County were solid. And as you go out, Lancaster County, ironically, has quite a Quaker component in the house. But the further you go out on the frontier, then it begins to change. You get uh, Cumberland. Cumberland County is certainly not Quaker, for, uh, generally speaking. Uh, uh, Northampton County, York County, it's a very different uh, group of people. But it really depends, depends where you are. Many of them served in local office. And, are, and many of them had relatives that may have served in the House. Um, the interesting thing is on the other side of the coin is that some people who were extremely wealthy and powerful, who you would have assumed would be in the legislature, never served. Uh, and there were also people who were not wealthy and powerful who serve in the House. For example, Bucks County had, I think, what was called a Dutch seat almost. Yes. For years on end, they would have somebody from the Dutch community in Bucks County who served in the House right. who may or may not have spoken English very well because you'll find for years, I mean, the Van Horns, for example, I think they may have served 20 terms or so and, and never had one assignment and the whole time they're in the House. So, but it, it is, it, they represent their community, I think was the idea. And my sense is, to some degree, that in a place like Lancaster County, they tended to be more from the borough of Lancaster rather than the outlying areas, which was a problem that they were trying to rectify. And the other dilemma is, on some occasions, like Cumberland County, uh, William Allen serves for Cumberland County for about 20 terms. He's a Philadelphia merchant. Right. You were allowed to actually vote for somebody who didn't necessarily reside in your county, but simply owned land in your county. So the advantage, if you're living in Carlisle, of voting for William Allen who lived in Philadelphia, is that you know he would be there every day. <laughs> and you didn't have to pay the expenses to send him down right. to Philadelphia, mm -hmm. which, which actually entered into it, because uh, the, uh, the county would pay the expenses for the, uh, for the representative. So it was cheaper. Uh, a term was two years. You referred to term. One year. One year. One year term. I, I want to ask you about the elections because you, you have something in here about the uh, 1926 election riots. Well, the 1926 election, you write here, in 17, Philadelphia. 1726. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure there were riots in 1926 <laughs> as well. 1726 <laughs> election in Philadelphia resulted in a riot in which a mob burned the stocks and pillory and also the butcher's stalls in the marketplace, and there was also a disturbance in the Chester mm -hmm. County election. How did the elections work and what caused the riots? Well, uh, the 1726 election riot is, is 
was, is pitted for the first, not the first time, but it pitted um, two specific focal groups in Pennsylvania. Um, governor Keith, who had just been dismissed as governor, headed up his own faction. And, and, and part of the factions grow out of the Depression of 1720, when they, the colony was literally thrown for a loop. And so out of their desperation, this is when they begin to pass paper money acts. Um, uh, Keith had sort of a large artisan uh, indentured servant following. <laughs> and uh, those people who were mostly hit by the Depression. So uh, in this heated controversy, um, the pro-Keithites, I guess, for a better term, burnt down the stocks and pillars. I hope nobody was <laughs> in them at the time. But, <laughs> but in, part, it was, in a part, it may have been an expression of frustration simply because the assembly was not mm. listening necessarily to Keith's faction. It had pretty much shut them out of the political process. And Philadelphia County is intriguing because of the fight for the stairs, because it was at the, yes. I think it was at second, what became second on Market Street, I think was the, uh, was the there were market stalls at the bottom and you would go upstairs uh, and then, so actually you go up one side of stairs, cast your ballot, which was a ticket that you put in, and then go down the other side. So whoever held the stairs <laughs> might control the election. So that sometimes the, 1742 was the worst case where uh, sailors came in on the side of the proprietary faction uh, to stop what they felt were unnaturalized Germans coming down and voting for the Quakers. So consequently, they have tremendous pitched battles sometimes for the, to gain the stairs, so you can control the stairs. The key players in elections are the, uh, are the inspectors. That's, that was the real, wherever there was reform in elections, it was an attempt to, to change the way uh, inspectors were actually elected to make it more geographically desirable, so it would be more balanced, they weren't all from one area, and also to make it more objective. Because the real fear, whoever the inspectors were controlled who voted, essentially. And that became the key. And there were also problems in other areas. Philadelphia wasn't alone. Lancaster County was a, it seems to me, especially in the 60s, was a fairly heated, <laughs> heated elections. Pennsylvania was unique in this way in that it, it really was in the cutting edge of democracy in that even though they had guidelines as to who couldn't vote, many who weren't supposed to did vote. It almost became a sort of common knowledge that your right to vote was always there. The inspectors complained bitterly about people showing up at the polls en masse. Vote yeah. early and vote often. That's I right. Would <laughs> <laughs> put it, but it, there were there were a number. Now the House had complete control over the whole issue of elections as well, which was was a very important right. So they could determine who could or could not sit. I mean, William Plumstead was a Philadelphia merchant who was elected. I think it was in Northampton County, and there was a very bitter dispute there, and he never was seated, actually. I think it was in 1756. So to some extent, the House needed that right to be able to exercise control over the elections. There would be ballot stuffing in some cases, and the famous case of Sus uh, Susie Wright, who was the daughter of uh, John Wright, uh, up in the upper part of a tavern handing out election tickets <laughs> from a ladder. And I mean, this kind of stuff apparently went on uh, quite a bit. What kind of a relationship did the assembly have with England? And the governor was appointed by the king? No, the governor is appointed by the proprietor with the approval of the crown. So, and, and, and normally, as I said, it couldn't be a Quaker. It had to be somebody who took an oath. Mm -hmm. And then the relationship between the assembly and England? They had to submit the laws to the crown within five years. And they, they had ways to get around it. But effectively, they, the idea is that the common law was supreme so that the Pennsylvania legislature, in theory, couldn't make laws that were not in line, essentially, with English common law. So laws would be sent to England, at which time they could be approved or disapproved. Now, what the assembly did was hire agents. 
they actually had agents. I mean, later on, well, Franklin was, right. is an agent. Ben Franklin is an agent for the House. The idea being, obviously, to lobby both the proprietor. Actually, th there were three groups they were lobbying. They were lobbying the proprietor. They were lobbying the Meeting for Sufferings, which was the major Quaker meeting in England, uh, feeling that friends, at least while friends were uh, controlling the Pennsylvania legislature, friends in England would help them. Uh, in, for example, on the affirmation question, whether the right to take an affirmation rather than an oath, uh, which was very important to friends. So they would lobby the Meeting for Sufferings, and the agents would also lobby the Crown. So there were three groups, and, and it was a real concern. A number of laws were, in fact, set aside by the Crown. It was not an easy relationship between the two. It was, it was during the era that you cover in this book, 1710 to 1756, that the State House, or Independence yes. Hall, was built. What did you find in your research about the building of that building? Quite, Quite a bit. bit. Quite a bit. <laughs> it started in 1732, and I think they finished about 1736. And uh, one of the chief architects was a man named John Kinsey, who in fact later serves in the Assembly, or was at the time serving at the Assembly, was one of the key Pennsylvania politicians at the time. Uh, it took them... Several years. In fact, after 1736, it took them several years to finish it. And after 36, when the assembly moved in, they still had not finished right. the, the building. Um, yeah, the key, the, the, the major uh, uh, driving force behind it, uh, originally the house met in private quarters or in any place where they could get a, a fairly large room. Uh, the house being fairly small at the period. You know, you, you're looking at anywhere from 24 to 36 members. That's all. Um, uh, Andrew Hamilton was certainly a, a driving force behind it. He had a falling out with John Kearsley, who was the other one that was involved, essentially. And uh, it's believed that the draft for the State House was Andrew Hamilton's. He was a speaker, very controversial speaker, for nine terms of the Pennsylvania House, and a seven-term speaker for the, what was essentially the Delaware House. And uh, he really became the driving force behind it. And of course, it wasn't just the assembly that met there. Upstairs was the provincial council, uh, so it was easy to run messages that way between. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how they did it early on. They probably were running up the street, basically, to get to the provincial council. And then the Supreme Court was also in the, in the same area. And I think the offices for enrolling documents, deeds and things like that, I think were in the same general location. Right. And the land was actually uh, sold by William Allen, who was another very important figure, to uh, uh, to Hamilton. At the time of the Revolution, it takes on even greater significance because the, the Continental Congress sits, I think, on the second floor, or the first floor, I'm not sure now. But they sat on one floor while the Pennsylvania Assembly sat on the other. And by 1775, <laughs> rolling into 76, uh, Pennsylvania was holding up the revolutionary movement. So in one room, you have Continental Congress sort of steaming away at the Pennsylvania delegates one room over, waiting for them to sort of get on board. And so I imagine the, the politicking there must have been thick and furious. But, uh, now, you mentioned Benjamin Franklin, and uh, he shows up a couple of places in your book. And I, I want to read the entry on, in the alphabetical section <laughs> under Franklin. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, Assembly, City of Philadelphia, and it lists the years 1751 to 1775. And then it says, because the most significant part of the political mm -hmm. career of Benjamin Franklin occurred after 1756, his biographical essay mm -hmm. will appear in Volume 3. Three. Well, that certainly puts it off, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't about to take that one on. No, we we're still figuring it. out how we're going to do that. It's yes. going to be uh, focused on his legislative career. It has to. And, but uh, he was clerk of the House for a right. time. Yes. And what was his job there? Was he a member of the House at the time he was clerk no, of the House? He just no. was the clerk. He simply took the notes, took the minutes. 
Um, we know that uh, at one point he must have kept a running dialogue of some of the more important debates. Unfortunately, only a few sheets have survived, which is a, which is a real loss yeah. to historians because we could, for once, we have an idea, a sense of what they're actually discussing. Right. Um, and he rarely talks about the House in his letters, which is unfortunate. But as clerk, I, I imagine he felt a certain confidentiality was right. necessary. And of course, he was publishing the Pennsylvania Gazette at the time, which is also interesting because they were publishing uh, the minutes of the House at that time. I want to read the part about that because that's another place that Franklin shows up in this book. It says here, as early as 1704, the Assembly began making its minutes public with a committee appointed to revise the House proceedings for publication by which the House then meant displaying a handwritten copy signed by the Speaker in the Philadelphia Coffee House at Front and Walnut Street. Yes. Mm -hmm. And people would just come by and mm -hmm. see the... The, the coffee house was a famous gathering point for a lot of the merchants and, and ship captains that came in, as well as just citizens who lived in the city. And all your important information would be posted at the coffee house. Uh, right. um, newspaper advertisements, pamphlets, including the minutes of the Assembly. And crowds would gather and, and read the minutes, get a sense of what's happening. And then it says that, uh, well, that started in 1704. Then it says Andrew Bradford was hired in January 1922 to print the minutes of the House. He was replaced in January 1730 by Benjamin Franklin and Hugh Meredith. Right. Yes. So this was a printing contract that he had, right. that Franklin had right. to do this? He would have uh, for, the, for the minutes of the House. He had a falling out with Meredith, unfortunately, later on um, for <laughs> reasons I don't know if we should go into. Meredith may have had some problems uh, drinking. And that comes up in some of uh, Franklin's letters. And so they had a falling out. What Franklin did when he came from Boston into Philadelphia, and, did, and he was a printer by trade, and, and he returns from England. He goes to England briefly, comes back. He takes a copy of, of something that Bradford had done and um, of, his, of his own volition, reprints it, and does such a great job. He shows it at the assembly that does a great job that they give him the contract. And he literally <laughs> elbows Bradford out of the printing business for the Philadelphia Minutes and the Laws. And right. that's how he makes his name. And right. then by 1745, he was such, so successful, he could literally retire from the printing business right. and live off the income. Right. As clerk, I just put a quick addition as clerk, we know that he was bored. Um, we, mm -hmm. he, and then his son, who became clerk after him, was also bored because there's lots of doodles <laughs> on the minutes and, and, and diagrams, and clearly he wasn't paying uh, attention. They weren't as thorough as we would like. They didn't, yes, uh, one, yes. of the, one of the problems that we run into in this period, there aren't, there aren't any division lists. If, if you look at the Commons, House of Commons in England, you have the division where literally if a question comes up, they divide it and walked out doors, yay or nay. Uh, in the House, they very, very rarely, until the Revolution, printed the divisions, which we would love to have had. Because it certainly gives us a lot more insights. Even to know who voted yes and who voted yes. no. Right. Yeah. Only on some issues does it, does it really come up. So we, we were hoping that Franklin would be far more vocal in his letters on what was going on. And occasionally we get lucky with someone who may have kept uh, a diary, like uh, Folk, Samuel, Samuel Folk, I think it was. Uh, Bucks County. Of Bucks County, who kept a diary of what's going on. So you get, a, you get a better feel for, you know, the dynamics of the house. For the historian, Franklin's gift is that he leaves Pennsylvania and goes to England. <laughs> and uh, he was still the titular head of the party, though. And so correspondents wrote to him frequently with giving detailed information about what's happening in the house and politics in Pennsylvania in general. And from those letters, we now get a greater sense of what was happening. We can identify individuals with particular political stances or social movements. Right. Um, but until he leaves and this correspondence is developed, we don't have any, we had no other handle to. Mm -hmm. 
don't want to put that in the wrong light that he, <laughs> <laughs> he did a great job in England. <laughs> we have we have not talked a lot about the specific members of the legislature. Right. And I'd like to do a little bit about that. But I want to talk about uh, get each of you to talk about yourselves a little bit. Uh, first of all, uh, Joe Foster, can you tell me where you're from originally? I'm from Philadelphia. I was uh, born in the city, uh, Temple University Hospital, and um, I lived in the surrounding area all my life. I received my PhD from Temple University. In what? In American history, specifically the American Revolution, and even more specifically, Pennsylvania American Revolution. I did a dissertation on a man named George Bryan, who was a Pennsylvania leader of the um, revolution in the so-called constitutionalist movement, a very radical element within the, within the revolution. And uh, for years, I've uh, worked on the project. I was on the project from the beginning. 12 years ago, is it? 11 years? Mm, long, long time. time. the project. The Biographical Dictionary Project. I was That's still, ongoing? It's ongoing. Right. And uh, mm -hmm. I was in the process of my PhD when I first came on. And uh, I'd, so I'm currently with the project, and I teach adjunct at Temple and at uh, Villanova University. What are you teaching right now? What classes? I just finished a course on what I uh, originally started out in my studies was Civil War history. Uh, when I first entered the history field, I, I wanted to be a 19th century historian to do Civil War. But events transpired and I drifted into revolutionary period. But it was nice to get back, so I just finished a class on Civil War history and Reconstruction. And, uh, but I also teach mainly U.S. history courses at Temple University. And a course on Franklin. I just, oh, yeah, course on Franklin. I, I just uh, last year I did a seminar on uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, the writings of Benjamin Franklin. And it, was a, it was a lot of fun. We brought the students came in and, and we brought out uh, various letters and texts that he had written. And, and um, fortunately, Temple was a diverse school, so you get diverse opinions about the various things he had done. And uh, it, it engendered a great uh, controversy among various aspects of his life, particularly his positions on, well, um, philanthropy. Um, the public and private persona of Franklin is always a great debate. Um, it, was he hypocritical or was he sincere? And personal questions like that. What did you learn new about Franklin in teaching that course that you hadn't known before? Gosh, I, I don't think I fully appreciated just how bright he was. I, I don't think I, I had a full sense of the, the great depth and, mm -hmm. and width of understanding. Franklin really, in his own way, truly understood the 18th century and he understood Americans. And what he had envisioned and what he would, his, how his thoughts were evolving was he had pretty much laid out where America was going, that it was becoming more vocal, that you couldn't, you couldn't have millions of people sitting in North America being colonialists. It's not going to work. And, and what he envisioned, in fact, is what has happened, is that an American is going to continue to grow and they're going to be vocal and left to their own devices, they will do well. Um, Plus the fact that he had his great knowledge in electricity and, and virtually every subject he could, he could discuss um, fluently. Yeah. So I don't think I appreciated fully just, just the great depth of knowledge he had, his capacity to learn. Now, Craig Horley, how did you get involved in this project? Well, let's see. Um, the project itself or the background, <laughs> Philadelphia. Well, tell Philadelphia me about your background. Born, went to Central High School. I had to give a plug to my old high school. Uh, Temple University for the BA and the MA in history, English history and a Ph.D. at the University of Maryland uh, in Tudor Stewart, English history, he said. Um, I lived in England for eight years, um, teaching for the University of Maryland's overseas program and also working for the Quakers, uh, the archives. They're the largest archive for the Quakers is in England, in London. So it was a London yearly meeting, records were there, which are very useful for a book that I was working on, on the Quakers and English legal system. 
which I subsequently wrote as a dissertation and published for University of Pennsylvania Press, um, came back to Philadelphia and worked on the uh, papers of William Penn, which was a documentary editing project. And then from there, uh, myself and two colleagues uh, re realized, A, the importance of the legislature. I mean, we were finding this out indirectly through the papers of William Penn. The other problem was we couldn't identify anyone. We were looking in the letters itself. Our tendency was, of course, to identify uh, either to whom Penn was writing or from whom he was receiving letters or people mentioned in the letters. And there was very, very little on any of the legislators or their families. Uh, and we realized maybe there was a real need for this. So the three of us was Mariana Vokek, who's uh, now at the University of uh, Indiana, Purdue, and Joy Wiltenberg, who's now at Rowan College, and myself uh, basically founded the project and been with it ever since and hope to continue. <laughs> <laughs> Where does the money come from? The oh, you would ask that question. Well, let's see. The National Endowment for the Humanities has been the major uh, f uh, provider of funds. Uh, we've been very fortunate. For years, they had a what was called reference a tools section of the National Endowment for the Humanities in that this is a reference work. And uh, it's had very favorable reviews on a national level. And the funds, generally speaking, have been matched by the uh, legislature. Um, we've, we've had very good success initially uh, with the legislature in a bipartisan uh, way. Uh, the House leadership uh, was very influential in helping us get started out with. At the time, it was Leroy Irvis who was the Speaker of the House, who was a Democrat, and uh, Matt Ryan, who was the minority leader at that time of the House and is now Speaker of the House. Who hooked you up with University of Pennsylvania Press? We approached uh, Temple University Press initially, and they, they felt it wasn't something that they wanted to take on. And then I had, I had published my book uh, on the Quakers and the English legal system with Penn, and the Penn papers had been published by Penn. And uh, a two-volume work that I had done on uh, the court records of Sussex County, Delaware, from 1677 to 1710, had been done by Penn. So we had a working relationship, literally. So we approached uh, Penn, and they were very favorable toward it. What's it like going through the papers of someone like William Penn? I mean, is it excruciatingly tedious? Or? It's, a, it's, a, it's a funny you would use that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough because you're only doing it with one person. It's much more interesting to do this kind of work where you're dealing with so many different people and so many different records. So in a sense, it can get fairly uh, tiresome. The difficult area for us was actually selecting the letters because we didn't do all of his correspondence, like, for example, the Franklin Papers would do. So we had to actually go through and grade, give a grade to each of the letters in terms of, of whether we should publish it or not. So the A letters would get published, the B would be debatable. Uh, but the other difficulty is, of course, when you have uh, four people working as associate editors on a project and you're just taking a small chronological area, you're not always aware of what was going on before and what's going on after. You're just literally operating in a vacuum. Whereas here, we're dealing with people who make, you know, go over 30 years and we're taking all sorts of different chronological areas when we're, when we're doing the house because we tend to pick our people uh, by geographical location. You know, maybe Joe will do Chester County and Lancaster County, and I'll work on Cumberland County and Northampton, things of that sort. Other people work on Philadelphia. So there you have a, a little greater sense of what's going on with everyone else. But a papers project can be difficult in that sense. You really don't get the flow and the continuity. On the other hand, you develop a, a perspective like Joe did on Franklin, that Penn is extraordinary. He's an extraordinary individual. There's never been a really top-notch 
biography of Penn. They're, they're still looking for that. That takes in all the facets of the, of the individual. I mean, he really was a fascinating character. Now, this book has about 1,200 pages and has a list price of $185. <laughs> yes, it does. Who decided it would be $185 and who's your market? <laughs> Not us. Not us. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot the messenger. <laughs> we did not. I think the, the University of Pennsylvania Press decides. And I think from their view, the market is uh, our libraries. Uh, it's, it's difficult, I mean, uh, to personalize it from our view. It's hard because we know, for example, that many genealogists, people who's, who may have uh, this, you know, ancestors who are members of the house or connected to the house in some way, love this book and would like to get it. It's, it's really priced beyond their reach. And our other dilemma is that historical societies, like, say, Cumberland County Historical Society, Lancaster County Historical Society, it's often very difficult for them to be able to match it. But ideally, the market really is are the libraries and the historical societies and various institutions, because it is, uh, you know, ultimately a reference work. We should add it. We receive nothing from the sales price. I mean, we yes, we get nothing from it. <laughs> We don't set the price. We don't receive a dime. <laughs> you know, um, we think we honestly think it's, a, it's an outstanding reference work. It's going to be one of its kind for the period, and and we really do believe that a place like the legislature needs that kind of institutional memory that was lacking. There's very little was known about the early procedures of the house, how the house worked, the power of the speaker, and things of this sort that we tend to focus on, as well as who all the various members are. Now, this book is 1710 to 1756, Volume 2. Uh, how's Volume 3 coming along? Volume 3 is doing well. We, um, when do you expect to be done, Volume 3, and what are its years? Well, we're, going to, we're not sure yet. We're going to go into the revolution. I think it's going to depend on how many people we run into. What happens in the House is that with the revolution, it, it mushrooms. It ex explodes in terms of new people who come in because of 1776, Constitution. Joe knows a lot more about it. it it's a, a very radical constitution with term limitations. And consequently, you have not only the expansion, as the colonies expanding with more members, you also have term limitations. So there's an enormous influx of new people that come in. So we're going to take it from 1757 at least into the revolutionary period. Um, and we should hopefully in about another two years? Two years, I think. About another two years, we hope to to be finished. The other dilemma is that the House literally changes its personality after 1756. It is, it operates differently. They have a different set of assumptions. And it's a different set of people. Um, Non-Quakers, um, yeah. Presbyterians, Irish, right. Germans, who just see the world differently. Yes. Yeah, the Quakers, 10 Quakers resign in 55, 56 because they feel they can't legitimately carry on during a war. You know, friends with pacifist principles. Not all friends. <laughs> that was the French and Indian War? French yes. and Indian War. Not all friends leave. Actually, some remain. And, and those who leave even weren't happy about it. They were getting a lot of pressure from Philadelphia early meeting. But for the first time, the House, as a Pennsylvania House, uh, I didn't add in the beginning, that Delaware remains connected legislatively with Pennsylvania only until 1704, really. Then Delaware splits off and becomes its own legislature. The same governor controls both Pennsylvania and Delaware. So from 1704, 1703, 4 on, for the first time in the history of the Pennsylvania legislature, Quakers are no longer the majority with the war. And that does change the dynamics fairly dramatically. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, and we have really not talked about, <laughs> we have not talked about any of the individuals in here. So I'd like to, first of all, how many different people are, have biographies in this book? 
in volume two. Yeah. It's, it's over 200. I think 225 or 323 in the first volume, 225 in this. Right. Um, Are they all white males? All that white is males. Correct. Even though they, uh, there is no law that specifically mm -hmm. says you had to be white and male, it was just a general understood fact that mm -hmm. was how it operated. Yeah. Can you each, with a couple of minutes left, can you each pick out one of your favorites and just tell me a little bit about him? I, I, usually my favorite is the person I'm working on at the time. That's <laughs> literally, uh, I, I just finished, and I'm actually in the process of finishing an essay on John Armstrong, who served out in Cumberland County. And even though his, he only sits in the house for three terms, he becomes a key player for the Western Frontiers. Um, he was an Irish Presbyterian. He had become a personal supporter of the proprietary government, but the, the revolution is declared. He drops his support to the Penn family and, and picks up the revolutionary cause. He fought in both the French and Indian War. He fought in the American Revolution as a general. He has an interesting career because he brings to um, the House and to Pennsylvania history a different perspective. It's a perspective of those who live out there on the frontier, sort of up against the, the, the hostile Native Americans, um, although they themselves are equally hostile. But he, he brings a sort of a sympathetic ear to these squatters and to the landowners who are trying to push into the Indian territories. Um, so in that respect, mm. he, it, was, it, was a, it was something somebody who was different. How did you find out about him? What did you, what did you have to go through to research him? He is difficult because, like most Irish Presbyterians, we know very little about their early background. The Irish records simply aren't there. But fortunately for John Armstrong, because he was so prominent at the time, there are family histories floating out there, which we read with care. Um, but we are able to sort of get a background information. And once we are pointed into the right direction, and we can begin to dig into those records. Um, uh, Cumberland County records, for example, will tell us where he lived, how much land he owned. Um, the minutes of the provincial council, the minutes of the assembly will tell us his political operations. And the newspapers after the revolution begin to give us more detail about individuals. But once we have a background, once I had a background as to where he lived and, and the, the primary function that he performed, I could then begin to suss out more fully his life. Yeah. Craig Horley, who's your favorite? Uh, it's difficult to say. My favorite in, in academic terms would be Andrew Hamilton, who, as I said, was probably the architect behind the State House, also nine-term speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, seven-term speaker of the Delaware Assembly, arrogant, abrasive, uh, very powerful, and disliked rather dramatically. He was a, a lawyer, one of the few, uh, famous for his defense of uh, John Peter Sanger in New York on, on a libel case, which is very famous in American legal history, um, but was clearly, was so disliked in Philadelphia that although he lived in Philadelphia, he actually ran in Bucks County to get elected uh, under, thanks to Thomas Langhorn in Bucks County. But he's a fascinating figure involved in very bitter disputes, uh, partisan disputes uh, in, in uh, Philadelphia. I want to ask you about one of those because you. Oh, I was going. Oh, sorry, I was, was going to lean on someone else. Oh, this I really is a. Like. This is a. Oh, well, I'll, I'll ask you about him. I just want to read this quote about uh, Andrew Hamilton. You say um, he steadfastly refused to disclose his background, his birth mm. and right. origins, prompting a bitter partisan rival, Sir William Keith, to assert that he was the scabby offspring of a Scotch <laughs> moggy begot upon his cleanly mother by a scratching peddler against a famous rubbing post in North Britain. Yeah, that was the nicest thing Keith said about him. <laughs> Keith was a governor. Keith had been governor, who, as Joe had spoken before, that was the election of 1726, who hated uh, Hamilton. Very bitter partisan and rapier wit. 
Keith had. And uh, that comes out in a number of other cases as well. And Hamilton never disclosed his origins. It was always mysterious. Um, it's believed he may have fought a duel, which is why he left Scotland, or he may have been uh, illegitimate. And he never, ever actually talked about it. So it's always been a mystery down to the present, down to the present day. Who's your other favorite? James Burnside, who was the first representative of Northampton County, who I thought literally I wouldn't find anything. This is, we run into cases where you think you're not going to find anything. And he uh, was really fascinating because he was in Georgia initially and was actually very much involved with John Wesley. In fact, provided the boat that enabled Wesley to sneak out of Georgia in the dead of night because at that time uh, Wesley had been indicted. He was, uh, had, had also aroused very bitter uh, partisan recriminations. And Burnside turned out to be one of the more interesting people I did. Became a Moravian and had a falling out with the Moravians. Came back to the Moravians, another falling out. Really very interesting uh, individual. And there was a tremendous amount of information on him. And that, that, I think it was because it was so surprising uh, how much there was. And also the Burnside house still stands. Do you each work on one person at a time? Are you each working on one particular person right now as we speak? Yes. Yes. It's, it's easier that way. Uh, right now I'm working on uh, finishing a man named John Douglas who uh, served from Lancaster County in the 1760s. And uh, we know that he was prominent in this community. We know that um, he was vocal in his politics. But after 1776, he literally drops off the face of the earth <laughs> and blends in with the thousands of other John Douglases of <laughs> Pennsylvania. So uh, right now I'm trying to sort out these various Douglases and see if I can pick up a thread as to whatever happens to right. him. Yeah, we don't have a directory that you can go to <laughs> and says, John Douglas, right. son of, White uh, you sometimes yeah. often have to literally uh, work your way through five or six people the same name. Uh, I, I have two easy, I, I usually do 20 people at a time. I'm, I'm not the one person at a time. But two of the more interesting ones right now are William Allen, who was a leading proprietary force in Pennsylvania, and Daniel Robodeau, who was a brigadier general during the revolution. Very interesting figure. How many right. people are working on the project right now? Uh, we have right now um, five full-time, two part-time. Right. All historians. This is the cover of the book, Lawmakers and Legislators in Pennsylvania, a Biographical Dictionary. Craig Horley and Joe Foster, thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you. you. We enjoyed Brian. it tremendously. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.